As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Sarah Panous hosts a great podcast called Marketing with Empathy. Sarah, tell us what these fine folks will get when they listen. Marketing with Empathy is a weekly podcast, and it's designed for brand content marketers who want to connect with their audiences through storytelling and are looking for help to do it better. Plus, like enjoy that recognition, growth, and just joy that comes from creating great work. Awesome. Where can people subscribe? Yeah, head on over to marketingpodcast.net and you will see the Marketing with Empathy show there. Otherwise, wherever you listen to podcasts, you'll find Marketing with Empathy. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today, I'm excited to introduce you to Sangu Mandana. Sangu was four years old when an elephant chased her down a forest road and she decided to write her first story about it. And 17 years later and many, many manuscripts later, she signed her first book deal. And she joins me today to talk about her latest novel, The Very Secret Society of Irregular Witches. I am very intrigued by that title. Before we talk about that, uh, welcome to Uncorking a Story, Sangu. Thank you for having me, Mike. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. I'm very happy to have you. And I'm going to ask you the question I ask everybody to begin, which is, Asangu, where does your story as an author begin? Oh, so there's probably a bunch of different places it could begin, but I suppose the earliest place was, well, you know, the elephant when I was four years old. So I wrote my first short story after we, my family grew up in the South of India. See, I'm already like starting out of order. Right. So I grew up (laughs) in the South of India and my family, my dad grows coffee, um, on an estate about five hours out of the si- outside the city where I grew up. And on our way there, when I was about four years old, we drove through the forest and a wild elephant chased our car. And I mean, I think she thought we were a threat to her calf. So yeah, and if, you, if you've never seen an elephant run, they are fast. They, yeah, really, I'm, really... Just, I'm surprised by that because they don't look like they have, they have a lot of speed to them given their size, but... No, they don't, do they? But they are fast. I mean, if we hadn't been in a car, I, I dread to think. 
But yeah, so I mean, after this, this experience, I went straight to my dad's desk at the estate, got out a piece of paper and a pencil and wrote my first story, which was about an elephant chasing us. And I mean, story is a strong word because it was like three sentences long and you know, terrible spelling, all the things you'd expect of a four-year-old. But I do think that that is probably the earliest point I can look back at and think that's when I knew I enjoyed storytelling. Then did you keep a copy of that story? My dad still has it. Yeah. Does he really? Did he frame it on the wall after you publish your first book? Or uh, you would think, but no, he just has it folded nicely in his desk. The same desk, by the way, is still there. Yeah, and I mean, by the time I was about, I want to say nine or ten years old, I knew that this was what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. and never really changed my mind. Okay. So when? So tell me a little bit more about that. When you went to university, did you study? creative writing or what was your what was your path to to writing yeah i mean i started i was writing novels i mean terrible novels but novels when i was like an early teenager sort of 14 15 and i remember being i want to say 15 when i sent out like physical manuscript with a proper cover letter and everything in the actual snail mail to tour in the US. And, you know, they're like one of the biggest fantasy publishers ever. And there I was just sending, sending my 15 year old self submission. But I got a letter back and it was a rejection. Obviously, it was a terrible book. But the letter said, had a little handwritten note at the bottom of like form rejection that said, there's a lot of potential here. Don't give up. And I just thought that that was like one of the nicest things anyone had ever done for me in my whole sort of writing journey. And it was, I think, the thing that made me determined to keep trying. So yeah, so then I went to university here in England, and I studied English literature with creative writing. And you know, I say this to a lot of people, you don't need a degree to write books, but I do have one. (laughs) And while I was there, (laughs) I mean, I don't know how much it actually helped me in my in my journey to publication, but I will say that I enjoyed being able to share stories with other writers, which is kind of what you do when you're studying creative writing. You kind of swap your stories, you give people constructive criticism, and I think that really helped. And I just kept going, kept writing new books, kept sending them out, kept getting rejections, kept trying again, and eventually it was, I think, literally... A couple of months after I finished university, it was 2010, an agent sort of took me on. And yeah. There you go. So, uh, so a, yeah. number of, a number of manuscripts until uh, you get that first, that first agent. How did you find the agent? Were you just querying them? or? Yeah, it was just the, the standard querying them. There were lots of them. A lot of people said no. There were a couple of agents who I can also credit with being a huge part of my journey in that they said no repeatedly to to multiple manuscripts, but each time they told me something that helped, something that made me feel like next time might be the time. And eventually next time was the time. And I think a lot of these things are about timing as well. It's possible that the book I queried with and got an agent with in 2010 wouldn't get as far today. And it's also possible that the books that were rejected, maybe some of the better ones, might have a chance today. I don't know. <laughs> Would, uh, do you think you'll ever sort of resurrect those those manuscripts, or do, you do anything with them, or are they uh, are they just going to collect dust? Uh, 
I mean, that's a really good question. I think they, for the most part, I think they will collect dust because I think writing for me is such a, is so specific to where I am at that point in my life. The books I write reflect the way I'm feeling, reflect what's going on around me. And so I think it would be really hard to get myself back into a space where I would be able to or want to resurrect a different part of myself. But I do, I do pluck little things that I still like and use them, reuse them. Well, that's good. At least you're getting something there. But yeah, you're right. I mean, when, when we write, it is a certain point of time, you know, kind of what we're going mm-hmm. through, you know, even in, in, you know, fiction, you know, it reflects kind of something that we hold dear at that point in time, some belief or some experiences we've had. Yeah. With how important was it to get a, just a little bit of validation or even acknowledgement in that in those handwritten notes that these agents were were sending to you? I mean, I, it's not an exaggeration to say that I think it made all the difference. I mean, I have so much respect for the people who work in publishing and in this industry. I know we're all overworked and we're all busy, and I know that it's not realistic or you know, necessary, not like necessarily helpful for people to take the time to kind of give personal feedback to everybody. But I think for me as a 15 year old in that very vulnerable state, you know how you are when you're a teenager, like everything feels magnified, everything. And I think that was the moment where it could have gone either way. And the fact that the editor at Tor took a moment to just write that little note at the bottom and to say don't give up i think that mm-hmm. meant the world to me yeah did they, did they have any idea that you were only 15 I, I, <laughs> it's so oh it's so long ago now i feel so old like, this was about 18 years ago so it's hard to uh i think i may have put in my like covering letter that i was 15 okay. which may be why they took the time to write the note because you know a lot of people don't want to crush the souls of the 15 year olds but yeah, I think they knew, but it's hard, it's hard to say for sure now. Well, I mean, you know, two lessons that I'm just picking up on here. Number one is just the importance of persistence, you know, as as a, as a writer and who wants to become, you know, a published author because it, it, nothing happens overnight. I mean, no. very rarely does it happen overnight. Um, <laughs> so persistence is important, but also encouragement too. I mean, having just a little bit of encouragement is so important for authors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think you can find that encouragement doesn't necessarily have to be from someone within the industry. It can be from like a trusted critique partner or um, even family, friends. I mean, I know that we often say that like your family and friends aren't the most unbiased. But I mean, if you have a mother like mine, who is more critical than anything else, (laughs) um, chances are if she says something's good, chances are it's good. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's funny. Tell me, you know, when you got that first book deal, what was going through your head when you when you when you heard the news, like, when, what did you feel, experience? Genuinely could not believe it. <laughs> it was funny because it happened as I was, my husband and I were flying from England to India to visit my family. And we stopped off for a layover in Dubai. And I turned my phone on. Because back then, you know, there was no Wi-Fi on planes or anything. I turned my phone on and I had a text from my agent saying, where are you? <laughs> Have you landed yet? an editor wants to talk to you. So that meant that the rest of my journey, like the the remaining six hours was like in a state of, oh my God, what's happening? Why do they want to speak to me? So, I mean, literally the moment we got to my parents' house, I messaged her back and I said, I'm here. What do you want to do? 
And then I spoke to a couple of editors and then she, my agent called me back and she said, we have offers. And I was like, this can't be happening. It's just, a, I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's so surreal because it's something that I at least had wanted for so long. By that point, I had been actively sending manuscripts out for seven years. And it just felt like this couldn't possibly be happening at last. Uh, and I don't think it really felt real until that moment when I got my physical advanced copy, which has the cover on it. And it has the, you know, the little, I mean, it says, you know, advanced copy, not for sale and all that on it, but it is a real book. And I don't think it felt real until that moment. Yeah. It was a real book with your name on it. Yeah. There you go. Well, tell me, what can you tell me about your latest, The Very Secret, the very secret Society of Irregular Witches? It's a very uh, interesting title. <laughs> so that title is almost an accident. It's, there is Secret Society of Witches in the book with that name, and I needed an extra adjective. And I was writing the book, and I was like, mm, I'm not sure. And I settled on irregular because I was like, you know, weird, a bit offbeat. And... I didn't actually expect my publisher to keep it, but they did. <laughs> From what I've heard, people like the title, so yay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's like I was saying about how books are so specific to a time in my life. And with this one, we were six months into the pandemic. And I had, until that point, been writing quite intense, darker, angstier fantasy and sci-fi. And I thought I can't really put myself into that space right now. What I want really is an escape from the real world, which feels like too much right now. And I want somewhere warm and cozy and romantic and just, just nice, somewhere nice to disappear to for a little while. And that's how this story came to be. It is cozy. It is the stakes are relatively low for a fantasy. Like if there's no world ending conflict. It's all about family and friendship and love and community. And I think human connection above all else, which is something I think we were all missing at that time. Oh, yeah. And in some, I mean, in some cases, we still are, really. I mean, it's not over. No, but, you know, because it's interesting, you, you know, you were mentioning, you know, you were writing some darker stuff before it. It probably would have been easy to to kind of continue down a darker path, just given where we yeah. were six months into the pandemic with so much uncertainty, mm -hmm. no vaccines. You know, mm -hmm. lockdown still happening, people dying. Yeah. You know, so what 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 was what was it about it that that you said, hey, you know what, I want to take a left turn here, and instead of kind of doing something dark, doing something a little bit more light. I think it's it's it was exactly what you just said. It was that feeling that I could very easily just keep going dark and darker. I've struggled with my mental health and with depression and anxiety for years and years and years, and medication and you know counseling and these things really helped but i felt that during the pandemic as i think was the case for a lot of people everything was just intense you're in small you're in small spaces with people you love but you know you're still in small spaces with them you're claustrophobic you get got that you know sort of like <laughs> like the shining cabin fever <laughs> where you think who am i going to you know attack with an axe next um, <laughs> I didn't attack anyone, I should probably say, just to stress to anyone who's listening, did not That's attack right. anybody. You did not turn into Jack Torrance. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> but you know, you, you feel like it is very easy to fall deeper into a depression, to fall into that darkness. And, and you know, in many ways, writing dark things has been a huge help in exercising that darkness. 
But in this particular case, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just the, the timing, the, the pressure, the fact that everyone in the world, I mean, for the first time ever in like my living memory, at least, everyone in the world was going through the same thing. And I just thought, no, this is, this is too much. And I want to go the other way, like, yeah. write about a world in which happy things are happening. <laughs> Well, that's therapeutic in a way, right? Because you can yeah, you can control yeah. you can control the world that you're writing about, but you can't control mm-hmm. the world that you're living in. So there's a little bit of you know projection into this fantasy world that you're creating. And yeah, why yeah. not make it a happier place? You <laughs> know, why not make it a, a lighter <laughs> exactly. place? You know, if, if the real yeah. world is is doing what it's doing, you know, why not? Yeah. And it is still very much our world. It is our present day world with all of the prejudices and struggles that come in our world. But the thing I very consciously made a decision to do was to fill my fictional world with kindness and hope and love and romance and just all of these things that we all long for, I suppose, in a way. And what we all needed then and still do, I think. Mm -hmm. So these are kind witches. For the most part, yeah. For the marble, there's got to be there's got to be an unkind one in there somewhere. Yeah, I mean there are there, there are ones who are a little little grayer around the edges. Yeah. <laughs> you have to have some tension, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> you may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Sarah Panuse hosts a great podcast called Marketing with Empathy. Sarah, tell us what these fine folks will get when they listen. Marketing with Empathy is a weekly podcast, and it's designed for brand content marketers who want to connect with their audiences through storytelling and are looking for help to do it better. Plus, like enjoy that recognition, growth, and just joy that comes from creating great work. Awesome. Where can people subscribe? Yeah, head on over to marketingpodcast.net, and you will see the Marketing with Empathy show there. Otherwise, wherever you listen to podcasts, you'll find Marketing with Empathy. You heard her. Go subscribe. Well, very cool. I've got some fun questions for us because again, Mm -hmm. this is all about trying to get to know you as a person. So what I'm curious about is when you were growing up, uh, what were some of your favorite TV shows? What were you watching, if anything, on uh, on television? (laughs) Oh, so much. So this is going to just like both date me and make me sound seem like such a geek. But yeah, I was obsessed with Power Rangers. (laughs) And I mean, like from like the the very first Mighty Morphin. Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Yeah, I mean, I loved them. So, I mean, every season of Power Rangers that came after that, I was watching them all, all the movies. I was there. I think I've seen the the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie, like that first one, about a hundred times. I, I, was, I could probably say it all by heart. Was, um, there a, was there a robot in that called Megazord? Megazord was like all of the Zords put together. Okay, because like I was Power Ranger. Yeah, I was as I was a swim teacher. I'm probably yeah. I know I'm a little bit older than you. So I would teach little kids how to swim during the summers. Mm-hmm. And one day, this was right at the height of the Power Rangers. They they stopped calling me Mr. Mike. And they started calling me <laughs> Megazord. And I'm like, what are you guys talking about? Why are you calling me names? And they're like, No, it's from the Power Rangers. It's good. I'm like, is it? Is it good? I don't it know. Is good. It is. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, it was a compliment. Like the Megazord was what happened when all of the Rangers combined their like machines together and made okay. one big super powered. Yeah. You were so super that was, powered. So I was, I was super powered. So in my day, we had a, we had a cartoon called Voltron and all the lions, mm-hmm. the Voltron lions would come together to form the big, yeah. the big guy. But so this is, this is their the same thing. Yeah. I got it. Okay. So I'm good. So I can go home and, and be proud of myself for you something should, that happened. Yeah. 30 years ago. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's funny. I still Absolutely. keep in touch with, I still keep in touch with one of the women who I taught swimming lessons with. We were like a, we were mm -hmm. like a team and all the, all the, all the parents wanted us to teach their kids to swim because we were the fun teachers. And of course I was Megazord. So that's, that's yeah. great. So the Power Rangers, it what else? It's a compliment. <laughs> what Power else Rangers were, were Scooby-Doo. Oh, the best. Never, nothing wrong yeah. with Scooby-Doo. Nothing wrong no, with Scooby-Doo. Scooby Lots of Nickelodeon stuff. Like, you know, the kind that were just, because I mean, obviously back then there was no, there was no, I mean, you had to record things on an actual VHS tape right. if you wanted to watch it later. So it was very much a case of put, coming home from school, flicking on Nickelodeon or Cartoon Network or whatever, and putting on whatever was on. So it was all those things like Captain Planet, all loved him, Scooby-Doo, Power Rangers. Uh, as I got a bit older, it was things like Friends and Grey's Anatomy, that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. What about musical artists? Who did you listen to growing up? Backstreet Boys. I was like, I grew, I, I had my tween years in the heyday of the boy band. So I, it was Backstreet Boys, um, Sync a bit later, uh, <laughs> really all of them, Westlife. You were all uh, in with Britney. the boy bands. I was all in with the boy bands. Then Britney, then the girls came along. So there was Britney, there was... Do you uh, by any chance follow Britney Spears on Instagram? I think I do, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think she might need medication. And no disrespect to her. I think she's fabulous. But she's um, she's got a very interesting Instagram account. I'll just leave it at that. Oh, I don't think I've, I've been on there much. I mean, I know she's had a really hard time yeah, um, she has. for a while. I think when anyone gets that famous, that young, it's it's hard. But yeah, no, loved her when I was when I was a tween and teen. Christina Aguilera, no doubt. Um, yeah, just all the boy bands and like young pop girl artists. It was just those two. Yeah, I used to love No Doubt as well. I love Hella Good. That's that's one of my all time favorite songs. How about feeding your inner child? I, I, I'm one of these guys who believes that we all have an inner child. Hmm. How do you feed your inner child, if at all? I still read and I'm still a massive fan of children's books. And I mean, I think that feeds my, my adult self as much as it does feed my inner child. But I do. I mean, I still write children's books. And what I love most about them, reading them, writing them, is that sense of being able to go back to a time when things were more exciting, more hopeful, where everything seems possible. And I love that. And I love reading about it. And, you know, just and that is that is what I go in for now. I, I read those books and I have three children, the oldest of whom is 10. So we will read a lot of these books together. He watches a lot of stuff that is, you know, obviously appropriate to his age. So I will sometimes watch some of that, too. And there is a lot of, I think, fun and hope and silliness that adults are missing a lot of the time. Yeah, I think. yeah it's true. For, some, for yeah. some reason, at some point in time, we forget. You know, we forget to have fun. We forget how to have fun. Mm. Uh, we forget, and I think that we we forget have, to be silly. Yeah, exactly. And I think we have this, adults have this, this irrational idea that being silly is, is too childish. But no, I'm, I, I'm a big fan of the silly. Yeah, me too. I'm right there with you. <laughs> how about this? When you, when, you're, when you have to write something, how do you feel when you're staring at a blank sheet of paper or a blank computer screen? What, what kind of emotions do you experience? Usually the emotion of... I should quit this and do anything else, literally really? any other job. I mean, there is a point at every single book I've ever written, including all of the published ones, where I stop and I look at the at the screen and nothing is happening. And I think, yeah, I'm not cut out for this. I need to do something else. 
And I, yeah, I want to quit every time. I've now come to embrace it as part of my process. And I know that it will pass. And that, I mean, that, I think that is probably the best thing about having done this for so long. Like, even when I wasn't published, is that this is most of my life. So I know now that no matter how blank the page is, it never stays blank. Yeah. Yeah. So even, even after all your success, you still have a little bit of imposter syndrome. No, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if that will ever go away, but I still think this is not for me. I'm not good enough for this. Why, why am I doing this? And I think in the end, what I come back to is that I love it. It is the thing I love doing more than anything. I think the moment you make your dream job becomes a job, you still have to treat it like work. Mm-hmm. And it comes with the pressures and the stresses of work, but it is still something I love to do. Yeah. And yeah, and I know now that the blank page will will unblank itself sooner or later. <laughs> That's right. Or you will do it. You will do it. But is there a, a little bit of motivation there in, in with that imposter syndrome? I mean, can you use that to your advantage somehow to kind of prove that you can do it? You know what I mean? Is there... I think so. I mean, I obviously I can't speak for anybody who doesn't have a little bit of imposter syndrome, but I think for me, it makes me that much more determined to carve out the space for myself. Like whenever I feel myself thinking that, oh, I'm not good enough for this, or oh, this industry isn't right for someone like me. I remember how much I love doing what I'm doing. And that makes me feel like, yeah, I need to work that much harder to prove myself yeah. and keep trying. I mean, I think if I didn't have that sense of persistence and determination to like make that space for myself, I wouldn't be where I am. And so I, I use that. I still use that. And I think yeah. stopping every now and then and thinking, is this right for me? Am I good enough? Is It's hard, but I think it helps. Yeah. No, I, I agree. It sounds like it. Thinking back to that first deal you got, you know, you were telling me the story, you know, in Dubai, you get a text message from your from your agent and then you learn that there's you know people looking for you know they're they're almost like getting offers right you're getting offers Mm -hmm. what lesson about publishing do you feel like you learned the hard way if if there is one you know what did you learn the hard way that that first book does not necessarily mean there will be more books i am very open about this my first book was published in 2012 and my second book was published in 2018 That is a six-year gap in which I could not get my books published. Various things happened. A book that was due to be published was canceled at the last minute. I changed agents. I had children. And I got a lot of rejections. And I just kept going. And I think that was probably the lesson. Because, I mean, it was very, it, it was probably the time when I came closest to giving up because you feel like you've done it. You've done the thing. You have that book deal. You've published that book. It should be easy from that point onwards. And that was a very hard lesson to learn that it does not get any easier. It is still, unless your first book is like a massive, massive bestseller, which the vast majority of books are not, you, it is still, the next book is still hard and the book after that, and it keeps going. You got to just keep going though. Yeah. There's that persistence again. Yeah. But also I think that it's, if it's not something you love, it's very easy to think that this just isn't worth it. Yeah. Yeah. You really have to. It, it is a labor of love. I mean, you pour so much it of is. your heart and soul into these into these manuscripts. Yeah. And I think, you know, like 
I always caution younger writers not to go into it, hoping that it, they'll become bestsellers, hoping that they'll be famous, hoping that they'll get movies made out of their books. Well, obviously, those are all very nice things. But if you're not doing it because your your first and most important reason is you love what you're doing, then it just isn't worth it. Yeah. Well, you just gave some words of advice to younger authors. But what if you could go back in time and give your younger self, you know, some words of advice? You know, maybe it's that that little girl who was writing the story about the elephant chasing the car, mm. or maybe it was another point in time. But what, what words of advice or wisdom would you give your younger self if you could? I mean, it, 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 it is trite, isn't it? But I would encourage her not to give up because there were times when, like I said, that it seemed close that I was going to give up and I would tell her not to. I mean, I suppose I would also, you know, given that I was me with the benefits of the future, I would go back and say, I can't tell you a whole lot about it, you know, spoilers, but there is a lot to look forward to. So keep going. I think more than anything, that is probably what my younger self, especially the younger self in my teen years when my depression was at its worst, would have loved to hear, to be told by a future self that there's a lot to be excited about. Just just keep going. Yeah, just keep going. I love it. And that's going to be the name of this episode. Just keep going. Uh, the, the book is The Very Secret Society of Irregular Witches, and we've been talking mm-hmm. to Sangu Mandana about it. Do you have a, a website or Instagram, any social media handles you'd like to, to share with us? And we'll put them in the show um, notes. Yeah. Yeah, my, uh, my website is just www.sangumandana.com. And my Instagram is just my name. And I am on both quite active. <laughs> All right. Very good. I'll be sure to put those in the show notes for anybody listening. Thank you. So you can follow and get in touch with Sangu. Sangu, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Sarah Panouse hosts a great podcast called Marketing with Empathy. Sarah, tell us what these fine folks will get when they listen. Marketing with Empathy is a weekly podcast, and it's designed for brand content marketers who want to connect with their audiences through storytelling and are looking for help to do it better. Plus, like enjoy that recognition, growth, and just joy that comes from creating great work. Awesome. Where can people subscribe? Yeah, head on over to marketingpodcast.net and you will see the Marketing with Empathy show there. Otherwise, wherever you listen to podcasts, you'll find Marketing with Empathy. You heard her. Go subscribe.